Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Witt here. Sometime after posting our last episode, we received the awful news that Terrence Dix, whom we talk about so very often on this show, had died on August 29th, 2019, at the age of 84. Please join us after the credits roll on this week's discussion for a special remembrance of the man who, more than just about anyone else, is responsible for the existence of this project. Thank you. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions, for all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Fraser Hind, and I play Jamie McCrimmon in Doctor Who. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, or as Jamie might say, enjoy your travels. And I normally do. (coughs) (laughs) Hospital ward of cats. (laughs) Hairballs. Calling Dr. Witt. Exactly. All right, here we go. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the Dalek-y task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations because Dick's famous us Dalek-y this time. Yes. <laughs> My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a equally Dalek-y four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts. And this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. We also have our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've read for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch-Safried. Hello, Allison. After I've read 45, am I no longer a novice to the books? I was thinking about that today. At some point, I graduate yes. to the first grade <laughs> from yes. kindergarten. We need, to, we need to give you a promotion. You can't be the Harry Kim of this uh, podcast. Yes. <laughs> and finally... We welcome back a special guest, and in person this time, the host and producer of the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, Larry Van Mersbergen. Hello, Larry. Great to be here, Tony. Thank you. Glad you were able to come. All right, before we get to talking about the book, let's talk briefly about our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. 
since we know you have so many of these that you use them to test your dolichinium explosives. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby's Binkelsdorf, and Jay Berry. <clears throat> By the guys. way, thank you. I apologize you. in advance for the rawness of my throat. Uh, this is the second full week of classes for me. So when you talk for a living. We talk yes. for a living. <laughs> endlessly. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with our discussion of the first story of Season 9, Day of the Daleks. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Day of the Daleks, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Lewis Marks, that aired from 1172 to 12272, published by Target Books in March 1974. As of this recording in September of 2019, this title is currently available as a reproduction edition and as an unabridged audiobook, 126 pages. Alright, a little bit of background on the story, and then we'll let Larry regale us with the different editions of the book, which we. <laughs> sure. this, our table is stacked up with books, fans. They're full. In fact, before we leave tonight, I'm going to take a photo of all of it so you can see just how much is here. And really something good illustration in here. Very and, good. And, and of course, with the shameless plug, uh, my latest episode of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast is solely dedicated to the story Day of the Daleks and all the printings and collectibles it produced, which is about as many as the Daleks from 1964. And they're all here on this table at (laughs) once. So by 1972, it had been five years since the Daleks had appeared on screen, and the managing director of the BBC was asking the production team to feature them, so producer Barry Lutz decided to bring them back. Now for years, I'd heard a false rumor, fake news. (laughs) I'd heard that Terry Nation wasn't consulted about this and demanded to have first refusal of writing any of the Dalek stories from then on, uh, though he got did get credit as their creator on screen for this. But mm-hmm. according to Shannon Patrick Sullivan's site, Nation was asked if he wanted to do a script. But he was then working on a series called The Persuaders, with an ex- exclamation mark at the end of the title. It's not that great a show, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but he was working on it. Um, and he was fine with another writer doing the script. He would, however, exercise his first refusal rights on the next four stories to feature the Daleks, which is a move that's going to affect the Daleks' stories for better or for worse for the remainder of the decade, as we'll soon see. Let's originally plan to bring the Daleks back for the season finale of this season in a story called The Daleks in London by Robert Sloman, but that was scrapped for two reasons. One, they didn't have a big enough hook of a story at the beginning of the season, and two, the scripts coming in from Sloman were looking, unfortunately, like a retread of the Dalek invasion of Earth. Of course, they had no idea what retreads were coming because Terry Nation never saw a plot that he didn't like to revisit. This is true. Yeah. Yep. As it turned out, the production team had already commissioned a script from Lewis Marks, who wrote Planet of Giants, mm-hmm. which was your first story with us, it was. Allison. Planet of Giants. Season 2 premiere? Yeah. 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 And... The, the first Dick's book you read? Yes. And the one you liked the least, I believe. No, no, no. I expected it to be terrible. It was the first one of these I'd read oh, at that's all. Right. So I actually enjoyed it. You actually it, enjoyed and that it. Was a surprise <clears throat> to me. And then the rest of us didn't like it as much. <laughs> but my standard, my expectations were so low. I'm like, oh, this is a lot of fun. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, your expectations have risen now. Um, the original script focused more on the Ogrons as the monsters. And they, I guess they decided adding Daleks to it would be a bad idea. 
and that caused a lot of trouble. For one thing, adding the Daleks in as the antagonist wasn't as simple as just giving them all of the Ogron scenes. <laughs> Marx had already created his guerrilla characters using the September 1970 hijacking of three planes by the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine is inspiration, hence the Middle Eastern sounding names. But when he added the Daleks and other elements, such as the time paradoxes and the first mention of the Blinovich limitation effect, the script apparently got complicated enough that Terence Dix would later say he had to correct a lot of stuff for the novelization. A few problems and features of this production are the sorts of things we never see on the printed page. Dix says nothing, for instance, about the appearance of the future humans under Dalek employ. Though, if you look at that PAL laser disc that Larry has brought, you will see the controller of the Daleks, and you will see that, well, you can kind of see his makeup, and you can kind of see that he is wearing silver uh, nail polish, mm -hmm. which all mm -hmm. of them do. In fact, mm -hmm. the gorillas do not wear that silvery makeup, and they do not wear nail polish, because, of course, in the 22nd century, it's hard to find a manicurist. Oh, yes. Yeah. The other issue more noticeable on screen is that they had only three Dalek casings, and one of them would be repainted to create the first, and as far as I know, only TV appearance of the gold Dalek. Thus, that final attack on Otterly House, which is not what it's called in the book, among other ch uh, changes, is done with about five or six Ogons, Ogrons, but only three Daleks, and one of whom cannot be reused because it's the gold Daleks, so they have to have the same two Dalek casings coming through all the time. Only two of them. Only two they of them. Exactly. They're very scary, though. They're very scary. It didn't help that the production team, for some reason, could not get the services of Peter Hawkins or Roy Skelton to do the Dalek voices. So they hired two actors who had never done the voices before and would never do them again. For good reason. Yes, they were <laughs> awful. is operating the time machine is an enemy of the Daleks. All enemies of the Daleks must be destroyed. Exterminate them. Exterminate them. Exterminate them. Exterminate them. Exterminate them. Exterminate them. The deaths by Dalek Ray are kind of odd as well because people just kind of put their hands up and freeze in position, which is just the most bizarre and they, death ever. they did ever. a negative... Um, Photographic negative, kind of like what they did in the black and white series where it was a little more effective. Right. But in color, it, it looks, awful. looks awful. It does indeed. Oh. Um, and some of the other special effects were less than special, even by the show's standards. Finally, there were problems with the music in that episodes two and three start with the cliffhanger music and even the sting that you get going yes. into the credits, which is bizarre. The final attack on the house is done with no music at all. Hmm. Right. Yeah. All these problems were fixed in the 2011 special edition release, which not only gave us more glimpses of the future Earth, but also redid all the special effects. Best of all, the Dalek voices were re-recorded by Nicholas Briggs to bring them more in line with traditional Dalek voices, and they sound marvelous. They it's a lot more menacing. Much more. Um, than yeah. the other voices. Whoever is operating the time machine is an enemy of the Daleks. All enemies of the Daleks must be destroyed! Exterminate them! Exterminate them! Exterminate them! Exterminate them!
the voices were kind of the old voices, and I and I know I did this in my Day of the Dogs podcast. I played the original and the Nicholas Briggs yes. back to back, and you could definitely hear a difference. And of course, when the controller is facing him. If he had heard the Nicholas Briggs voice, he probably would have taken a step back because those yes. voices were like, you know, and Briggs delivers. You know, it's mm. absolutely a wonderful job. Yeah. The yeah. only thing we can think is that the controller is so used to dealing with them by this point, he's like, oh, they're shooting. Yeah, they're just, they're just, they're just yeah. shooting. I've lost yeah. my hearing yeah. anyway. That's so. just what they sound like. <laughs> they just sound that way. It. Yeah, they're bosses from hell. It's a Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it's, it Charlie Brown's mother and teacher Dalek voice? Yes, exactly. Dalek. Waiting, Waiting to be born. Exactly. They also, they also, thank you, Allison, they also use music cues from other episodes over the Dalek attack and um, CGI some more Daleks in. Yes. And it's really impressive. And they even refilm some scenes. Well, the, the, the funny part is the very ending of the scene where they're coming out of the tunnel, they had to run them on rail tracks because of the train. And so if you can't see it, but there's actually no fender on the bottom of the Daleks <laughs> because they're not shown on screen. So they fixed that in the remake. They were able to CGI that together to make it look a little bit better. And of course, in the field, they're just standing still because yeah. they couldn't move they across the move. grass. Yeah. Because they, they switched from the tricycle to these wheels and the guy was like, they're not moving. Yeah. They just shake back and forth. And that's what they do. They Rattling. Just kind of, Rattling. Yeah. Rattling. Rattling menacingly. But yeah. in the CGI version, we do have a few. Yeah, they are advancing. Yeah. And if you're a unit soldier, you're like, oh my God, this is yeah. not going to end well. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. it, and it sure doesn't. No. Yeah. You don't you don't sign up to unit for um, job security. No. You no. sign up for the life insurance benefits to <laughs> your like, family. It's like the uh, red shirt on Star Trek. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but a few problems weren't fixed, despite Terrence Dix taking care of a big one in his novelization. The one left unfixed is a line of dialogue that would have explained that the Daleks did not meet their final end in Evil of the Daleks. That got chopped out for uh, timing purposes early. The other one is the resolution of the uh, Doctor and Joe seeing themselves on uh, seeing themselves on screen. Oh, what am I trying to say? Let me say that again. Well, they're they're running into themselves at the beginning. They don't run into them at the end. Right. Coming through the door as they do in the book. Exactly. Right. And here we get that we get a nice rounding of that. In fact, yeah. yes, you get the, the televised version or uh, the televised version ends a chapter early. Right. Yes. Yeah, okay. So that whole last chapter, whole first chapter, is all dips. For all that sounds. <laughs> yes. Bless yes. his heart and God bless. Um, several things. Um, several things tell us that Dix is fully invested in the writing at this point. This is only his second novel. Yep. His Ooh. first Auton Invasion. Mm-hmm. So it's in yep. that class. So he's more than willing to fix plot holes, create entirely new characters, make the invasion of the house a more exciting affair. A lot of the action occurs in a different order. Mm-hmm. For instance, Unit is on site much earlier in this version. Yes. Okay. And Dix has the time to build up the motives of the controller's eventual deceit, which is really lovely. I mean, it happens on screen, too, and you believe it. But it's built up so much better in the book. Yes. This book would eventually be published in several languages. And we have most of them here on this table, we do. including Dutch. We've got like four four copies of the Turkish version between Larry's three and my one. Japanese, which I used to have. Yeah. Polish, which I used to have. And Portuguese. There is also, and Larry has a copy of this, which is just astonishing to me because... Guess what? I found a PDF version of that one online. Oh, yeah, yeah. Strangely enough. Oh. A separate edition from the Portuguese version, a very a different translation, only produced in Brazil. 
and the only Doctor Who book to be produced in Brazil. Yep. Uh, published with the title, I cannot do Portuguese, but it translates out to Doctor Who and the Change in History. Doutor Who e a Mudança da História. And the weird thing about it is it has Hartnell on the cover. Yeah, the wrong doctors on the cover. Wrong doctors on and, the cover. And, and a very badly copied Chris Achilleos artwork yes. of, of a Dalek and Ogron. That, that obviously, they tried to get the cover, right. but they probably copied it. And we don't know if this is an authorized book. Right. It's the only one done, which tells me maybe it wasn't. It probably was. Yeah. Um, <coughs> I can well imagine it wasn't. Um, at least they got the Daleks more accurate than the Japanese did. Yes. Because <laughs> Japanese Daleks are a very different animal, indeed. <laughs> All right, so... Larry, it is our tradition to have our guest read the back cover. We have so many back covers in so many languages. We're going to let you choose which version you want I to do. I think I'll read from the first edition, a reading from the first edition <laughs> of Day of the Daleks by Terence Dix. Please rise for the Please reading of the first reading. edition. Mysterious humans from the 22nd century Earth, time jump, and time jump is in air quotes, by the way, back into the 20th century as to assassinate a high-ranking diplomat on whom the peace of the world depends. Doctor Who, Joe Grant, and the Brigadier are soon called in to investigate. Joe is accidentally transported forward to the 22nd century. The Doctor follows, eventually to be captured by his oldest and deadliest enemy, the Daleks. Having submitted to the Doctor to the fearful mind analysis machine, the Daleks plan a time jump attack on Earth in the 20th century. And there's a nice quote here. Doctor Who, the children's own program which adults adore by Gerald Garrett of the Daily Sketch. <laughs> which oh. does not appear in subsequent editions, by the way. No, it does not. <laughs> I guess the go. adults stopped adoring it. So. They must oh. have. In the, in, the in the third printing, they oh, went Tom no. Baker and took out a lot of quotes. <laughs> so, yeah. What astonishes me, though, is that some of the later reprints that have the um, neon logo yeah. at least retain the illustrations. Yes. This doesn't. No. It doesn't no. keep the illustrations. The uh, Pinnacles never did, of course. They didn't get the rights for them. Well, I, I finally figured out that the artwork on the neon logo is by Andrew Skilleter. Is that? And so, yes, I, I, I'm, by the way, I'm referring not, to, not I'm, best I'm referring word, to I'm the afraid. unofficial Doctor Who book guide by uh, Chris Stone, right. who will be uh, at the Chicago TARDIS this year, actually. Oh, fantastic. Because his wife is Samantha Stone, who okay. was, a, was a guest. Um, and he basically has all the books listed by year of publisher, who did the cover art, what the logo looked like, what the spine color was, what the ISBN number, and what the price was. So, uh, by the way, 30p was the original price of Day of the Daleks, mm -hmm. and the current price of the uh, current one is £4.99. So there you go. But uh, Chris Achilleos did the original artwork for the first edition. Andrew Skilleter did the neon, and Alistair Pearson did the, uh, the new edition. Hmm. The newer, newer edition, if I can find one of those this way. Yeah, the blue, the blue spine. The blue spine editions, yes. as they are called. Very, and those are becoming more rare now. They really are. But uh, beautiful artwork. And, of course, then they went back to the Chris Achilles artwork for the hmm. reprint. Yes. So, and um, you can actually, by the way, just a plug for, for Mr. Achilles, you can get a full print of this cover from him. And on his really, website, yes, oh. Andrew Skilleter's website, he's got this one, uh, along with a lot of other Target book covers hmm. that he has in full poster format. Oh, and wow. for a little extra money, he'll sign it for you. Well, unfortunately, as you can see, I'm running out of wall space yes. for prints <laughs> and such. Well, so. so you told us also, and I want to get into this before we talk about the book proper. Sure. You told us about the pinnacle. 
uh, yes. book and the, the weirdness of this hardback edition. Yes, this is really interesting, and I go into more detail on this on my episode of Day of the Daleks, the podcast, and uh, very happy to be a partner with this podcast, by the way. So a lot of people have We're been glad to have you. having both podcasts on their playlist. We thank you both Absolutely. tremendously. Yeah. In 1978, uh, a group called the Aeonian Publishing Company, which I can't find anything more about it, mm -hmm. but they published a hardcover edition, which, by the way, has been mismarketed as the pinnacle hardback. <laughs> and some people have been selling it for $300. And I've told them, actually, this copy, I bought this copy new off Amazon for $20. Wow. There's still a few out there. Oh my God. And it has the same logo as the Pinnacle Edition. The Pinnacle Edition, by the way, Day of the Daleks was number one of the Pinnacle series, mm -hmm. 1979, and has the same logo. Yes. I don't know if you see that there, Allison. It's the exact same logo. I and do. for some reason... I, I see and attest. And the, the, but they are, the companies have nothing to do with Nothing to do each other, right? and they're different, slightly different translations. That uh, is of course, odd. Of course, the Pinnacle Edition Americanizes. They take out the word boot and replace trunk. <laughs> yes. Because... We Americans are silly and don't know Britishisms. <laughs> right. So, um, of course, by 1979, Doctor Who was thoroughly being shown in the United States. Mm -hmm. Here it was the Tom Baker era in, in mm -hmm. Chicago. But I remember seeing these at the, the checkout of the grocery store. Yes. At Eagle and at Jewel. Enough. You would see them all there. And, of course, I bought, you know, they were $1.95. So I, I bought them when I found them. Yeah. I, bought, I bought this one when it came out in 1980. So it was, uh, it was really cool to have. Of course, the artwork is super cool, but the unit spaceship never appears anywhere no. in the story. I was curious about <laughs> yeah. that. Oh, yeah. and the, and the Ogron, why didn't they use that? Yeah, <laughs> the Ogron is from Planet of the Apes, yeah. but um, there's no illustrations in that either. But the, the thing is, don't be fooled. Do not buy a Pinnacle hardback, because Pinnacle <laughs> never made a hardback. Exactly. And I have it in writing from Kensington Books. They said that title was never made in cloth-bound. Mm -hmm. So... That's an, and of course that's considered a foreign edition by British yes. standards. So you hear, heard it here first, <laughs> or if you heard his podcast first, you, you heard, heard it, it there second. first. We hear it second. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to ask our two younger panelists first what their impressions of the book were, because um, yeah, I'm sure our impressions are quite different. That's because Tony and I are old. <laughs> <laughs> you have more history with. It. Yeah, well, there, there we go. We're, yeah, we're more seasoned. More seasoned. Right. More seasoned. Yeah. So as old, old people who've actually seen the episode, I'm looking at two different editions of the book here. I'm going to defer to our resident experts because I don't know uh, how to address these two editions by name. We have completely different Oberyn illustrations. Which one looks yes. more like the episode? The one on the, the right. The ones on the skeleter. Okay. So and that's, of, in fact, what they look like in full body. And it's actually more accurate on the on the um, Achilles cover. Oh, it sure is. That, uh, that Ogron is very accurate. And the Daleks are actually pretty close as well. Mm-hmm. That's indeed what the Ogrons look like. And the shadow on John Pertwee's face, everybody comments about him having a mustache, but he doesn't. It's a <laughs> shadow. Doesn't. It's a bit of a five um, o'clock shadow. But, but uh, yeah, but that's just, you know, it was, it's a great drawing, though, of, of, of the late John Pertwee. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he, he liked this cover. He actually, yeah. one of the books he picked up at our table in 1984 was this book. And he, he, was, he was admiring the books on our table, which was an experience, like, I'll never have again. <laughs> so... <laughs> Allison, what was your first impression apart from, you know, being kind of not sure about the Ogrons and 
all that. Oh no, I actually was just curious about the very different representations on the cover art because we don't normally have such an embarrassment of riches in different cover art. True. Um, so I love a good dystopia. So mm. I I really enjoyed the prologue and um, I liked that even though we don't see a whole lot of Mooney throughout, I like establishing him as a point of view character. Mooney, Mooney. Yes. Mooney, Mooney. <laughs> for, for the humans of, of the future. He never gets a TV role though. Uh, no, they have so they have a character called Bodia. Right. And I was like, I hope his first name doesn't start with an A because right. that's just awful. Uh, this but, is one of those stories where you see most of the plot beats coming, but I didn't mind at all. Really? Hmm. Why? Usually you don't like that. Usually I don't like it because I'm not trying to figure it out and it's obvious what's coming. It's because it's a little bit too lazy. But I thought they had, there was some interesting development of how the doctor figures it out. Oh, okay. All right, I can see and that. And how he is one step ahead of the reader in a way that we are sometimes privy to, sometimes not, True. depending mm-hmm. on the story. Okay, I get that. Dalton? I was expecting uh, more Daleks. <laughs> I was expecting the Daleks well. to, to play a bigger <laughs> part in it. I wasn't disappointed, necessarily, but I think with a title like Day of the Daleks, I was yes. like... Where are the Daleks? Yes, instead of just getting one cloudy afternoon with Well, it feels like in Oberon's story, they are kind of the main antagonists. They're the ones that are the guards. They're the ones that we have the most interaction with. Right. Uh, But other than that, I mean, that's that's a small detail. Whatever. I don't care. Mm. I really enjoyed this book. Great. Uh, Other than that, like, no, it was really enjoyable. I liked a lot of the illustration. Uh, The prologue, like we've all been saying, uh, just really gets us into kind of where this is going, gets us into that mindset, gets us into this kind of dystopian uh, future Earth mm-hmm. uh, feeling. So. And we have a map. And we ha- I, yeah, I, love a map. Map. I love a map. I love a map. It's a good map, too. It's a wonderful yeah. map. It, it captures the place better than the actual uh, studio does. For the <laughs> and Larry, what was your... Um, you said well, this is the first one you bought. This is right? the first one I bought, and I've read it so many times because it is my favorite story. Mm-hmm. And... A couple of things that I really loved about the book that was a little disappointing. Now, I did see the episode before I read the book. Because mm-hmm. okay. I started watching Doctor Who in 1975, so I have a few years on Tony. But that's okay. <laughs> um, of course, I was five years old at the time. So, mm-hmm. uh, But anyway, the, the first thing is this book delivers what I call the greatest superior Time Lord line given in any story. You're trapped in a temporal paradox, you morons. Now I gotta clean up your mess. Oh, and walks off in a huff. And it's the best line and Pertwee delivers it. Yes. Like, you see, this has happened before. You morons. And you know you wanted to probably go off on them and expletives oh, yeah. and Venusian. But like, alright, now I gotta roll up my sleeves and fix this mess. Ah, and the other right. thing too is that the controller in the book is the Commandant of Stalag Satin yeah, as opposed is. to the Candyman. Mm. Which, right out for the, for the Let's listeners... Let's make that clear who um, the, the, the candy we're talking about. Uh, Aubrey um, Woods. Aubrey Woods he, from um, Willy Wonka. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate oh, Factory. it's the same actor. He plays Bill the Candyman. He sings... Who can take a sunrise Sprinkle it with dew Cover it in chocolate and a miracle or two The Candyman The Candyman can Candyman he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. And by the way, oh. another another note about Willy Wonka and this story: John Pertwee was offered the role of Willy Wonka, 
and he turned it down because of his contract with Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Many actors were offered it, and it finally landed on Gene Wilder. Mm -hmm. But Aubrey Woods has a very good singing voice. He actually yes. has appeared in many BBC programs, oh, he's and he's a brilliant actor. And and one of the interviews I read about him, he really enjoyed doing the show. But Terence Dix decided to make him into a German. Yeah. You know, you know, I have been the controller in this section for 13 years, and the Daleks rule the planet. And so that was interesting, too. And also the, uh, the last part of the book, that little, after they meet themselves and have that little talk down with the brigadier, mm -hmm. um, this particular printing of the Target book has a very glaring typographical error on page yes. 140. Yes, if you have printings one through five, the last page of the book, first of all, I'm, I'm in publishing, but there's no page number at the bottom, and the word doctor is misspelled. Yes, <laughs> it is. Right in the middle of the page. Dot core. Dot core. Oh, come on, dot core. And so I went through all of my printings of the book. The, the book came out in 1974. It took till 1982 to fix the problem. Yes. They added the page number back. Of course, the page number is different because they took the illustrations out, but mm. they changed it back to doctor. So some yeah. editor was like, oh, my gosh. I just look at it as British charm. See, yeah. I would imagine that is every time a new edition is going to be put out, an editor says, good, we can finally fix those typos. Yeah. Well, that's and what some, we usually do in Someone publishing. in budgeting yeah. says, you know, the, are these we are really plates. not going to sell as yeah. many yeah. if we don't pay to have the entire thing typeset again? No, no, no. It'll no, sell and, just fine. And typesetting was very expensive. These books were done on plates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As opposed to nowadays, they're, they're done on paper, right, right, like right. we do. Um, and so, yeah, to change an error, and I know this from being in music publishing, too, when they do engraved plates, it's very expensive yeah, to re-engrave an entire plate. But Just to the, change one thing. By 82, they decided to do it again. And, I, of course, by sale, sales of the book were really good. I need to look that up and find out mm -hmm. if it was Nigel Robinson who was responsible for that. He may have been the editor be. still at the time, and I could see him looking at it and saying, oh, no. no. Oh, no, that's not going to be <laughs> I believe it's, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, right in, I think it's the only Target book that I've ever read that had a typo like that, especially the main character misspelled yeah, at the, the very end of the book. Yeah, the for sure. Uh, so that, you know, and also the story in the book kept you reading all the way through. You wanted to know what happened next, and the mind analysis uh, was much more expanded. Oh, God, and, of course, is. the doctor does explain how he defeated them and the evil of the Daleks to bring people forward yes. and saying, you know, this was that. And, and of course, the um, uh, Austerly versus Otterly house, which is interesting. <laughs> kind why, of bizarre. Why rename the house? Every um, once in a while, Terrence Dix will do that. He'll just yeah. change something for no apparent reason. And, and also, there was a little British band in the late 70s called the One Man Cheese and Wine Society, which I have to think was inspired by this book. And... Uh, also, speaking of, of rock and roll, uh, in the cast of Day of the Daleks, uh, Johnny Winston, who plays Shura, who's a very important character, uh -huh. he was the keyboard player for the Small Faces, who did songs like Ichiku Park and uh, Lazy Sunday. And now I'm going to have to yeah. go out and find clips for those to yes, drop them in. drop those in. But he was a songwriter, singer-songwriter, actor, and uh, he's still, still alive. From what I understand, and one of the few in the proud. I yeah. mean, we're, yeah, exactly. Many, many have have died in this production, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But we had our own entertaining misprint, didn't we? Because in the OCR version in no. chapter thirteen, you had the wonderful sentence, 
anal led the way. Oh my, I missed that. Oh one. yes, it, uh, ton, well, tons of anal. In was, that all, was that on all? Yeah, <laughs> well, possibly. My, well, respo- just, my just response so. was not in this house unless you give dinner in the movie first. But Whereas I'm I was not distracted not. by the black Dalek shriek with rage. You will be intermated. Well, in the last store, we we summoned anal, and in this one. <laughs> It, it, it came, yeah. so to speak. It so, came. Yeah, now we're in R-rated territory again. <laughs> Sorry, kids, go kids, to bed. Please leave the room for a few minutes. Uh, we'll let you know when it's safe to come the back. The adults um, are trying to have a conversation. Well, there was also an, another OCR. Uh, the wind whistled eerily in the peas. <laughs> <laughs> would you not be spooked if the wind was whistling through your vegetables? Well, of course you I know. would. If I had my raise the hair on the back of my head. My, <laughs> my favorite is some southern colloquialism here. Then kilt him. K-I-L-T. Which is the southern past tense for kilt. You're just asking to get killed, aren't you? Yeah, maybe Jamie came back for a little bit. Or it could be a verb. It could be. There was one notable difference to the gorilla that disappears... Um, disappears from the sick bay in the book mm-hmm. and the ambulance in the TV show. That's right. Oh. So there was there was a little difference there, and of course, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Benton's reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you could meet John Levine at Chicago Tardis this yes, November. You should come because Allison the well, whole crew will be there anyway. Yes. But I hope that person on their motorcycle won't be there though. <laughs> He's giving me a ride. Oh. <laughs> God. Well, it's my Uber. Oh, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> this is what it's like to record in Wounds Living Room, folks. What was I going to say? I was going to say something about... No, it's gone now. Benton? What would you like to say about Benton? I don't know. <laughs> I, th- I thought that's where you were going. Was Benton the one in the previous story who was fantasizing about winning the ballroom dancing contest? Indeed he yes. was. <laughs> yes. And, and and he was. He's the one who tries to sneak in the house for a little food and Mike yes. Yates pulls rank on yes. him yes. and sends him out to go check out another patrol and I'll eat the cheese. Oh, Mike Yates is such a so. bitch of this. <laughs> he really and, is. And of course, if, you know, fans who have seen all of Pertwee's know that Mike Yates is, a, is kind of an SOB and you know what happens to him later. No spoilers yes. here, but... I don't um, know what happens to him, but in every book, I'm delighted yeah. that he's not introduced as a love interest for Joe. Oh, God. Yeah, he does hit on her quite a bit. Yeah, and, uh, and at the beginning of the next book, just to spoil something, she's dressed for a date with him. Yeah. For yep. no apparent reason, no. except that she needs to be dressed in a highfalutin way for the story to work. Right, because otherwise when they get whisked off to the next story, which we won't talk about here. Um, but uh, <laughs> oh, the other the other thing, too, and I'll think... Oh, gosh, what was my thought on that? Oh, gosh. Perhaps That's she was visiting Styles' extremely well-stocked wine cellars, which I found yes. a delightful yes. recurring subplot. I like where yes. they go down to the cellar, I think it's the unit soldiers down the cellar, yeah. and the wine racks are just disappearing into the distance beyond the light. <laughs> this is a government-owned house, yes. so that's yes. government-owned liquor. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to mention that, of course, in this book, like we discussed uh, on my last appearance on The Mind of Evil, that apparently that didn't work, so we're, the yeah. world is now on the brink of World War III yes. again. Yeah. And the other thing, too, this uh, begins the season. I Actually, I was going to make a note. 19, uh, January 1st, 1972, uh, two wonderful things happened. First, my, my younger brother was the first baby born in Skokie on January 1st, 1972, a little after midnight. So, yes, he got all the attention. And um, <laughs> But he's not a Doctor Who fan, so that there, there you go. Well, That's we it. don't need to talk about no problem. him. <laughs> well, I won't mention his name for the fact that he won't be listening to this podcast. Um, and... Day of the Daleks aired for the first time in 1972 on January 1st, and it was without the Master. 
since yes. he was in almost every story yeah. in the previous season, mm-hmm. it was time to give him a break. It really Since was. he was arrested and taken off to prison, we don't revisit him again for a little while. Yeah, don't give that away because right. that's going to be my, my special surprise for both yes. of them. <laughs> it means that a lot of people in 1972 were nursing their hangovers and watching this after Din Din. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which sounds like a wonderful time, actually. Mm. It's almost like we watched um, the you know, latest Alex special again. All right, so where do we start with this? There's a lot to talk about. Uh-huh. What stood out to you guys? What did you like most as... What were the things you liked most? What were the things you didn't like as much, if anything? I like Joe, Be- Joe better in this book. Thank God! Finally! She, she has something more to do than just be captured and yes. squeal. Yes. Professional hostage. You know? Well, it only took one season. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. You know. Not being yeah. literally led around by the hand by three different characters in the same book. Well, that'll uh, still happen. They still condescend yes. and call her a child, but True. she at least gets to hit people on the head. Yeah, in fact, Emil <laughs> calls her a child. <laughs> she gets to crack an Obron over the skull. Yeah, yeah. She, does. she gets to take out a, a big guy. Which produces so. one of the best lines in the whole thing. Joe, that was a... T- Horrific vintage. <laughs> <laughs> and a very odd illustration. You have to wonder what she's up yes. on top of right. in that illustration. There must have been, so bizarre. It must have been a loft or something. And that <laughs> controller had a really nice pad, I will say. Right. Exactly. But yeah, yeah, it took long enough, but it finally happened. Good. So, so you've, you're finally starting to click with her as a character. I never had a problem with her as a character. It was just like, come on. Yeah. Give her something to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you'll find that in this book, and I would, I, in the next book, yes. she's finally acting more like the secret agent that she's been trained she's to be. She's more independent. Yeah. She gets more independent. And, and just enough to where she's so independent that there was time for her character to disappear. Mm-hmm. So it does get better. I think they finally realized, and I, and I know Katie Manning had a little bit to do with that when yeah. she was talking with directors and producers, and she was she said she was always great to work with, work with, and yeah. she was easygoing, but she wanted the character to be more than what it was, right? Which was the pass through your test tubes and tell you what a great job you're doing, right? Exactly. And which is what Liz Shaw said. That's right. been my so. main concern this whole time. It's like. I see that she has potential, but mm-hmm. what are you doing with her? You're just making her get kidnapped and mm-hmm. tying her up. Yeah. And it's well, like, luckily, right. with Joe, you actually have some time to develop that character because we've had that first season. Yeah. We're about to start another season, and there's there's one more, isn't there? There's one more, yeah. Yep, so we get three seasons with her. Three seasons out of her, which is a lot for this time period, it considering really we only got one with Liz Shaw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, of course, before that, you had Jamie for 132 episodes. <laughs> so... And, of course, you know, Zoe was originally supposed to travel with the, the, the third Doctor, and, yeah. but she was not available. And Patrick Troughton was supposed to be there for the regeneration, but was also not available. Mm. So he was doing uh, so many... Alibaba or one of those movies he oh, was doing. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I that's, thought he was doing the uh, Henry VIII. It might have been Henry VIII, but the original scene was Trout was supposed to fall out of the TARDIS and film the regeneration. Oh, that would have been and great. Instead, it happened in the TARDIS, and John Pertwee is in briefly in Troughton's outfit, mm. which you see for a split second. Yeah. yeah. And then... As we remember from the novelization. If you're reading the story, it's not clear who he's seen. I don't know if it was Troughton or someone else. Right. The book didn't quite... Well, of course, Autonavision... It's because it's just a dark-haired younger man. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Autonavision was the very first book published, by the way, for Mm -hmm. for W.H. Allen as a hardback. Right. Uh, It's one of the prize books in my collection. Uh, Very hard to find the hardback of that edition, but that was Terrence Dick's first novel. And it's a really well well written novel for the first story, uh, and they, they knew that first story was going to be critical because Doctor Who was um, hanging by a thread in 1969, yeah. and they weren't sure if it was going to go. 
and when it finally did go and it was gonna you know have you ever regenerated so hard to turn color yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of thing and uh yeah but that so, always seems like, to happen at the end of a producer's run though doesn't yes it? they're always yes. hanging on the edge of cancellation and the only producer that doesn't work with is John Nathan Turner. John Nathan Turner. And instead of him leaving, he just fires the doctor or gets a new one. Well, he was told to fire the doctor. Unfortunately. Yeah. And unfortunately, look, with Colin. Yeah, that was. Yeah, uh, that's a bad that's a, story. It's a bad story for another day. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, what is different to you guys about this one as a Dick's novelization? Because. Um, Larry, you were telling me that there was another podcast recently because he had died recently. Yes, the proclaimed uh, this his best book. The the latest podcast, and I'll, I'll give another shameless plug for the Big Finish podcast. Yes, uh, ben, the Ben and uh, Benji and Nick show. Nicholas Briggs was talking about Terrence Dix and his passing, and said that the best book ever written was Day of the Daleks, and said that the style of the book and the way it was written, and of course he had just redone redid the episode with his voice for the Daleks, and he reread the book, and he thought it was a really well-written story for a terrible television show that was done. Um, so I thought it was very interesting. And that podcast was published today, as of today's date. So that was it was interesting to hear him say that. He often gets bogged down in sort of intricate political machinations of the civilization of a week, in a way that can actually be very entertaining commentary on human nature, but this is a very streamlined story for him. Oh, yes. Yeah, and I, th- I think he gets inside the head of some of the characters. Mm-hmm. You get some of that background. You get some of that environment, you know, the world building. Uh, then in some, some of the books that we've read that Terrence Six did, it's not, they're not bad. They're just phoned in. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about how at times he was writing how many books a year mm. for Target. Just like... At one point, it would have been almost upwards of nine. Yeah. This year, it was just a couple. Right. And so I understand that from a writing perspective, from someone that's having to just get these things out. But this, yeah, there's care there. That that prologue, that, Mm -hmm. that scene building, getting us kind of in this world, it just, yeah, it seems like there's care. It seems like there's... He's actually interested in what's happening, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to just being like, "Okay, let's just get through this." Another interesting point too about Target and its uh, the Target books. W. H. Allen released this as a children's book. Mm-hmm. The Target series was designed for children, mm. and of course, that that evolves. And later Target books, they kind of abandon that whole thing. But you could get Warzel Gummidge books from Target. Yes, and other children's stories from Target. So the writing, um, and I read this as a child, so it was a very easy read. So I think. His writing yeah. style in the very beginning was focused, okay, a child is writing this, mm-hmm. so let's write this in that style, but also make it interesting, make yes. it a page-turner, yeah. um, make it not too violent, but mm-hmm. violent enough to show that this is what's happening. Precisely. And give it enough description so you can kind of visualize what's going on without ever having watched the TV program. Right. There's Which a is a good thing, because the television program is not difficult so good. to read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not difficult to watch. Sorry, go ahead. I, I love the illustration of uh, Shura in Style Cellar, looking very, very contented, like some sort of um, medieval anal- um, allegorical drawing yes. of yes. contentment and perhaps gluttony. Uh, but <laughs> a very nice, elegant thing he does for children is there's this idea that Shira's maybe never had a good meal in his whole life. Mm-mm. And the idea that in Stiles' house, there, there is what they, they call it. They, uh, Dr. Trucks about the, how these bureaucrats always have very well-stocked larders and right. you have a great cheese yes. and a wine. 
um, in a contrast to these humans who have never had a single creature comfort. The rebels have never had a single creature right. comfort. The mm, controller yeah. has had some. But that's an interesting thing to bring out in a children's story in yeah. a way that I think is very understandable and very tactile. Oh, yeah, and showing what the 22nd century mm-hmm. could look like. And, of course, we don't know in the book that it's a could be. Right. We, say, we, we find out first it's a, it's a definite. This mm-hmm. has happened. The Daleks mm-hmm. even say so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've done this. This is a fixed We've point. got time travel. You know, in other words, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. So, and the doctor realizes that, but then, it, you know, he eventually turns the tables and says, nope, this isn't going to happen. Right. And going back to Allison's point just for a moment, uh, one of the chapters opens with uh, Joe eating a meal, and she says, oh, it's marvelous. Yes. But we get her internal <laughs> like, dialogue yeah, saying, rubber chicken. Oh, I don't think the doctor would like this wine at all. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> we don't get it on screen. On screen, we think she's actually enjoyed it. Yes. But here we get that... But greater depth. In terms of development, we're starting to see her be not just scrappy, but smart. Yes. Yes. Much more strategic. She's learning mm-hmm. in a way that we've talked about before. Some of the other companions have seemed interesting at first and then com- been completely stalled out by the writing in terms of development. Yeah. She is developing in a way that seems believable. She is definitely developing. Yeah, the, of course, the meals are different in the story and in the TV show. Oh, yeah, that um, too. The controller and Joe eat coarse bread, tough meat, and a mishmash of strange vegetables. <laughs> um, so instead of a luxurious meal. It's so like a school cafeteria. Yeah, strange <laughs> And of course, this is considered a luxury in the controllers from chapter 9. Mm-hmm. So it's considered a, a big luxury in the controller's time. Mm-hmm. So very, very interesting stuff. And of course, the controller, and of course, the controllers are different as well. You've got uh, the guy in the book who I think is a little more menacing because he has the German accent. Uh, now, where are you to, getting that from? Because I believe you've said that a couple times, I, I, and I haven't... I believe uh, I read that. That's... Unless I'm getting my books mixed up, <laughs> which can happen when you get Because I'm more than willing to take that on board. Let me, let me find a little bit of the controller here. I mean, it's hilarious to read his... I want an intensified voice of the For some reason, I thought... Oh, no, no, excuse me. Not the controller. His, his, his second in command. Oh, the one who takes over. Yes, he is German. He is German. I okay. got those guys confused. So okay. I apologize, listeners. <laughs> Long, you know, you read the book so many times, the characters start to mesh together. But, but it's, yeah. it's fun to read his dialogue with a German but, accent but they, and think of it. It's like, you are a slave. That's right. Unless, <laughs> unless you give me that information, the Daleks will destroy you. Which sounds a lot more intimidating. I mean, I think I even, I may have even read it that way. But I know when you get to the, to the, to the very end, they, they kill the controller, and I believe that the, the guy is written in a, yeah, the controller who Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there actually is a lot about food in this book, isn't there? Yeah. There is. I, I just happened to look at page 12 in our first encounter with the controller. He's eating an excellent meal, real wine in a real china cup, and is repressing a twinge of unease at the thought of those of his fellow humans who are less fortunate those in the work camps. They would be draining their bowls of gruel about now, desperately licking the bowls clean to see that not a scrap of food was wasted. Dix generally doesn't do that sort no. of thing. And That's this nice little more. note that he's thinking himself quite refined, drinking wine out of a china cup. <laughs> yes. Well, because how would he know any different? It's exactly. a vessel for a liquid. He's getting a liquid other than dirty water. He's very happy. Yeah, he doesn't realize it's probably... Pause. Tony is angry people are getting emergency medical treatment. I really am. <laughs> they should just die. <laughs> During our recordings, they should just 
<laughs> Get rid of the surplus population. You see yeah. how quickly he would... Insert sound of flatline? <laughs> he would turn. Yes. Uh, Sounds like he's Scrooge's line, but yeah. Are there... Are, are there, there no orphanages? Are there no workhouses? Decrease the surplus population. Or as they do in the, um, the Klingon Christmas Carol, is there not Rurapente? Yes. <laughs> so yeah, lots of food, lots of detail, which he doesn't normally do. It's more, that's more a Malcolm Hulk kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And um, something that I'll say in the memorial to him later, he gives Malcolm Hulk a lot of credit for being his mentor. And you can see it, it's just, men... When he doesn't have the time to put that much care into it. Now there's a helicopter, sorry. Oh, God. Okay, let me stay in really car, Cars and trucks and things to go. What the hell's going on out there? There's a day of the dogs Last going year, on out there. There was a fugitive running through the park and there were helicopters and it was. <laughs> But it wasn't while we were recording. No. This is the day of the Daleks. Oh, They're here. Waiting for the loudspeaker from the helicopter. This is going to be hellish to edit. <laughs> so, not that it ever isn't. Um, Local <laughs> color. Yeah. Right. Oh my god. Okay. Well, but that is an age-appropriate introduction to the idea of part of what it means to be human is to enjoy simple pleasures. And it wouldn't mm-hmm. be appropriate to have a lot of, you know, sex and whatnot in this mm-hmm. particular book for children. Sure. But now that you mentioned the Oprins are first described as stuffing down slabs of gray material that they're given to eat by their masters. And mm-hmm. the idea that they don't have that spark of humanity, perhaps, is partly being demonstrated by the fact that they don't have that enjoyment, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was trying Sorry, to Sorry, I just stretched my thought out to the end of the bite. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. What else? Larry, you pointed out that there's a bit of under-the-surface continuity going on because last time you were on, we had Mind of Evil, and the world yes. was on the brink of war then because of the Chinese. The Chinese delegation. Here. And it's the same thing in this book. The it's Chinese the delegation yeah. refused to attend, maybe even the same guy. Yeah. And I'm guessing... The, the guy finally goes, hey, where's that doctor? We never had that dinner. Screw this. Britain, I'm taking you on. You know, that, you know, that was the whole, the whole point of him speaking uh, Hakien, you know, was, yes. was doing that. But again, you know, and they bring it, they make it very serious. You know, all unit personnel are on full alert. What are they going to do if war breaks out? Yeah. You know, it's like, they're going to be the world's police, apparently. But the brigadier is like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll check out what's happened at the house. Meanwhile, everybody else is on full alert that the Chinese are going to raid us at yes. any time. And Styles is the only guy in the world who can go to Peking and persuade the Chinese to dial it down a notch. You know, come on, we're right. okay, it's all good. Let's and talk this out. Yes. I brought a case of Burgundy. Well, this. Only Styles can go to China. And I, and I will say this about the TV show. The actor who played Rachel Styles did a very wonderful job yes. with that. He yeah, delivered it as, as a member of the House of Lords or whatever he is, and he did it very well. He acted like a snoot, which mm-hmm. was perfect for that role. And, and I was like, I didn't say ghost. Just get out of my way. I've got work to do. <laughs> right. Can I search the house? No, you may not. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Though isn't that a change in the plot, too, that in yes. the televised version, he finally admits that he yeah. saw something, he whereas saw here something. he doesn't. He, does he goes not. off to China without admitting it. Right. Because the unit's already there. Yeah, the doctor kind of calls him out about it in the uh, show where he says, uh, did you make those muddy footprints over there, Sir Reginald? Somebody was here last night. Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay. <laughs> well, guess, <laughs> guess, uh, guess uh, I'm And uh, I'm going to fire the cleaning crew. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, another thing that I find interesting is that it's early enough that they are referencing other books. 
Um, Allison will, uh, since we're old comic book fans, we love the bit where you the see at the bottom. The asterisk, yes. And yes. it says, in this issue, and where all good comics are sold, Doctor Who and the Doomsday Task Weapon available where all fine books are sold, yeah, that they're still trying to make this piece, this together, even though they are going about it in probably the worst possible way. We're handling these in story order. They are not publishing them in story, story yeah. order. It's just uh, bizarre. What's even more interesting, of course, at the end of the, in the first edition, second edition only, the very last part of the book, uh, stay on target. Here are details of other exciting uh, target titles. Yes. If you can attain for your local bookshop or newsagent, or write to the address below listing the titles you would like and enclosing a check or money order and currency, <laughs> including 7p per book to cover packing and postage, 2 to 4 books, 5p per copy, 5, five to 8 books, etc. And it lists a whole bunch of books, including The Auton Invasion, Fishing by J.H. Eliot, <laughs> The Stone of Terror by Margaret Greaves, Ghost Schools and Other Horrors by Bernhard J. Herwood, Investigating Gods, we're getting into some deep stuff here. And my favorite, Abandoned! Abandoned! Abandoned. <laughs> J.D. Griffiths, oh it sounds awful though, a kitten, yeah, a kitten, heartlessly abandoned when 12 weeks old, gradually accepts the loss of her comfort and security and learns to survive in the grim and savage wilds of Stormwreck Dartmoor. Good lord. It was the runner-up for the 1973 White Bread Library Literary Award. Well, now we know I didn't which, win. Which, <laughs> of course... I'm sorry, the White Bread Literary Award? Well, sorry, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Bifocals need to kick in. White Bread. White Bread. That's why it didn't win. That works. The White Bread. The White Bread. Oh, that's it. And if you did enjoy this book, you can get a free Target badge. Have you ever gotten one of those? I've I've seen them on eBay. You have. Um, they do exist. It's just a button with the Target logo on it. Of course it, it is. And you could pay up to a hundred or more dollars for it because you only got it if you wrote to Target and you lived in the UK, uh, which I guess uh, whoever owned that book si- did. Simon Green didn't because he, he owned this book when he was ten years old. By the way, oh, he wanted to. His full address here. Uh, Lives in, uh, where does he live? In Kent. So, interesting. And he didn't but, send it in. No, it didn't send the it in. The lazy little bastard. The pages are missing. <laughs> I've, I've seen some copies where the pages are missing because they tore because them out. Because they tore them out. And got their Target badge. But yeah, the Target badges are, are pretty cool. Also, by the way, in 72, um, Sugar Smacks oh, uh, did a special yes, box with, with John Pertwee on the front cover. And in each box, <laughs> yes. you could get a little badge. Uh, and so, I actually have the Doctor Who badge. Uh, for John Pertwee, and I've got one for Joe Grant. They had the Brigadier uh, unit and uh, the Master. Uh, there's a guy on Etsy who's copying them, and I just got my Jodie Whittaker one. It's really? Doctor Who with Jodie Whittaker. Oh, that's awesome. So they're they're dollar fifty each. Uh, so oh my God! I have to have it. I'll send you the link. I must have it. We'll, Thank we'll you. Post, we'll post the link somewhere. We will put that else. definitely in the uh, yeah. description but, for this episode. But yeah. So the and by the way, somebody was selling the box. Uh, they found a box flattened. They re put it together. Nine hundred dollars for the box, by the way. If you can find, box. yeah, if you can find a Sugar Smacks sealed with the cereal, over four thousand dollars. Oh my god! Because it was a limited run, and it was the only time he was on the box. Wow! It's kind of like I guess Wheaties. We honored our our veteran actor athletes, athletes and Bruce Jenner and the like, and, and they got Doctor Who. And Doctor Who got to be on Sugar Smacks. Oh. So well, that's why we like Sugar Smacks more than. Of course, it was a kid's show, but uh, yeah. But that was it. But those badges too were about the same size as the Target badge. Exactly. Um, um other things we liked about the book, because I know we keep kind of pinging back and forth off of it, because this is, of course, all fascinating. I'll say the the illustrations are you amazing. Know. 
And I found out that we, you know, and somebody had asked why they took the illustrations out earlier. And when um, Andrew Skilleter did the artwork, uh, you know, Chris Achilleos owns all his artwork. Oh. And so he took the artwork came out of the book, and they didn't put it back in in subsequent editions to save time. But there are some great pictures, including the picture of the mind analysis machine. Mm-hmm. Which I was, was going to bring that up. Was a full page. It's a Ooh. wonderful picture of Patrick Ooh. Troughton. We didn't mm-hmm. have these illustrations. Yeah, this is only in the first and second editions. Yes, it's not in the, my edition. Yeah, the block logo editions only had them, and uh, the third edition went to the Tom Baker logo, and they took them out. So, mm-hmm. uh, and those stayed up until seven printings, and then the neon logo. But the, the illustrations are wonderful. Oh, it's here. It's here, but it's <laughs> tiny. Oh, it's yeah. in the it OCR. Yes, yeah, so I yeah. thought it was. Yeah. The OCR has it just. Yeah, this is the second impression, so yeah, this is the second edition. So you have that the on, this is the first one. Mm. So you've got, you've got that. And so the, the illustrations, and of course the uh, the controller looks more like the TV guy. He really does. And he's got them hooked up and the Daleks are, you know, coming in. And that's actually one of the most menacing scenes in the new edition of the TV show. Oh, yes. When he's hooked up to that thing and the effects are different and the Dalek voices are coming and down. Nick Briggs him. is yeah. just giving it all its he worth. Is, he's going full Nick Briggs on mm-hmm. this one. And so there, there are some wonderful illustrations um, by Chris Achilleos, the, uh, you know, just to bring the story kind of alive, including the, the destruction of Austerly House at the very end, mm-hmm. which is really nice. From the hillside, the Doctor and the group see a tremendous eruption. Not explosion, eruption. <laughs> eruption. So, yeah. interesting stuff. We need to get that clear so. Yes, and, the, of course, and of course the map at the very beginning, which is well drawn. Oh, absolutely! And by the way, the map kind of takes you back to the Dalek book, which the first thing you open up, it's a map yes. of Scarra. Yes, yes, yeah. it is. And it's very similar to that mm-hmm. style. Of course, that was a different artist. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and uh, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast, but you can get the Andrew Skilleter print from his website. He's got full size yep. prints of these said. covers that you can get from him, and uh, some of them are autographed. They're just some of the best That's artwork. Marvelous. Done by Target, where the where the Skilleter, um, I'm sorry, the Chris Achilleos, mm-hmm. and I keep hoping they get him back for a convention, but uh, yeah, that would he be gets awesome. he gets passed up. But uh, he's a good, he's a good friend. Uh, I've That's talked it. to him many times. Just a wonderful man. Now, quick thing, not quick thing. Obviously, something I want to do a deep dive on. As a matter of fact, the way Dix handles the Daleks, mm-hmm. because these guys have definitely read just about every appearance of the Daleks, except for the first one. I think neither of you read um, Doctor Who and the Daleks. You have my copy of it. I still have your you copy. You still have my copy of I it. I do still have it. <laughs> but you Don't haven't worry. quite read it yet. But apart from that, they, they've they experienced, you know, how uh, John Peel writes the Daleks, right. which is a very different animal mm. than yes. from, say, how David Whitaker wrote them. How do you... Um, you have read uh, Dalek Invasion of Earth, though. I think both of you did. You didn't. That's right. Remind me which one it is. Um, no, you read Planet of Giants first. Oh, it would have been the very next book. Next story was. Yeah, yeah you were, you were here for this. You were here for uh-huh. this. The very first time we had the Daleks. Okay. In 2158. It's that movie that you and okay. I watched. Okay. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does it seem that Dix is handling the Daleks? Is he handling them pretty well? Is he handling them like um, the dangerous creatures that they are? Or, Dalton, you said you didn't get enough of them. I think it's just the nature of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the times we do get them in the story, they are menacing, they are scary, they are very threatening, mm-hmm. but they're they're just not represented a lot. Even in the future, we hear about them controlling Earth, we hear about them being the ones that are in control of all this, but we still don't really see very much of them. No. 
That's true. Um, but yeah, the the moments we do get them, I mean, they're screaming, they're yelling, they're and they're terrible. Bleeding, intermediate. Yeah, all these exterminates, and it's like I could feel that. I get that kind of like, Ugh. but but it's not. Their absence is not as it, it doesn't like make you feel threatened by them. Right. Even when they come to present day Earth, you know, <clears throat> it's it feels like yeah. they're invading, but it feels like there's like. Three or four of them. Yes, and that's exactly what we get on screen. It's almost as right. if Dix is paralleling what we got on screen, which is unfortunate. He could have given us hordes of them. Yeah. He really could And have. it would have really felt like there was a threat. Like, yeah. oh, God, these things, okay, well, they, they know the plan to, like, mess up their future. Yeah. They're going to come ensure it still happens, but it still felt like, well, you didn't really bring enough people or enough <laughs> of you to make... It feels it's that kind of like way. the Iraq War all over again. He right. doesn't have enough troops, and, and so the <laughs> fact that Shura is able to destroy anyone that came with, a bomb. with one bomb, <laughs> it's like, well, how threatening? How but, much of a threat were you? But yeah. mm, I, I read it as they were able to win because the Daleks didn't take what had become sort of a, a mining town backwater seriously at all as a threat. Ah. they didn't bother. To send much force. They didn't think they needed it. The humans are, are guarded by apes. True. Unintelligent creatures. Mm-hmm. The humans are supposedly so completely subdued that there's no need to implement much security. Is how I, well, that, since the humans had been underestimated, thus they're able to win. Is how I would read if it. I could throw in a little bit yeah. of a timeline here. I'm, I'm going to refer to the Lance Parkin <laughs> History of the Universe. <laughs> right. Because one of my big problems with Day of the Daleks is the timeline. And, of course, this is a great book, by the way. It's the incomplete timeline of every Doctor Who story up to mm, this up printing. To that point. There is a, a newer edition. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 2167, the Dalek invasion of Earth. So they've invaded Earth. They've cut up the hole in the ground. They've mm-hmm. completely subjugated humanity. Mm-hmm. And then what's interesting, in 2170, the chase happens. Yes. And that means the Daleks are going after mm-hmm. the Doctor mm-hmm. in the time machine. Mm-hmm. That was the time that that was set there. Okay. And 2172, in an alternative pocket here in the book, Day of the Daleks. So the humans seem to have forgotten that 10 years ago they were completely subdued by the Daleks. Mm. <laughs> so the Earth may have been already somewhat conquered, cleaned up. The Doctor came, went. It was all good to go. And by the way, in another thing, if uh, it's not a Target book, but if you've ever read Legacy of the Daleks by yes. John Peel the Daleks left behind an entire army in the cave with, and the Master wakes them up. Right. So, the great book, by This the is way. what he does. Yeah, it's just, it's <laughs> a, and John Peel is an amazing writer. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that this timeline, um, of course, it says here, the Daleks sent a small, well, they, what they did is they sent a small force, and it seems like the Daleks were kind of almost, um, you're sending us to that, and they were a little angry about it, which is why they were kind of all angry all the time. It's also one of the only invasion stories where they don't have to contact the Dalek Supreme on Starro for instructions. They do in Dalek Master Plan, they do in The Chase, mm. they, Evil of Daleks is on Scarrow. Right. Power of the Daleks, they contact Scarrow, and they don't contact Scarrow. In fact, Scarrow is only mentioned briefly when the Doctor's eating with the with the uh, controller. Right. They strip the mineral earth and ship it back to Scarrow. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. So, of course, this timeline gets completely wiped out, but the humans in this timeline would have remembered the Dalek invasion of Earth having been only 10 years prior. So there may have been, of course, Dalek invasion of Earth, the book, was written almost a year or two after right. this one. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't addressed in the books, but this, it should have been addressed in the story, and it was missed in the script. 
Yeah. That some of the humans would have said, yes, 10 years ago, the Daleks were defeated by a great traveler who came to us in our time of need. <laughs> which, when you get the plan of the Daleks, there's a whole different story with that. Oh, God. Yeah. So, which is also <laughs> a great book. And but we have in this book the uh, the rebels literally caressing the draperies. Yes. In, in Styles House because they yes. haven't felt soft fabrics before and they wear plastic right. clothes. Yes, much different than people who 10 years ago would have been living like normally. You know, the other problem I have, of course, is that if, if Shura causes the you know temporal paradox yeah. how did it start so there's a causality loop that because in the future they went back in time someone did it the first time right. and came back but it happened so something happened in that point when the Daleks came back in time and then started the causality loop right by breaking their own time stream by coming back 10 years after they invaded. Now, if they were smart, they would have come back 10 years before that, right. got the place ready, and then the Daleks yeah. from Scarrow would arrive and go, who are you guys? Yeah. You know, because we, we haven't alarming. discovered time travel yet, <laughs> so we don't know that you're real Daleks. It's kind of, it's, it's the problem with writing time travel stories. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Dix actually does a very good job of trying to keep this all together. Right. Luckily, because... Mm. The structure of the book is actually much more logical than the structure of the it story. It is, yeah. and he does a great job of putting that together and explaining. And of course, the the rebels tell the history right. of what happened, and the doctor's listening to this intently. And of course, that's when they get to the point where, did you by chance leave any body behind in our time zone? <laughs> oh no! That's what. <laughs> now I know what the problem is. It's like the mechanic that finally listens to your car and goes. I know what the trouble is. This guy rattling around. Yeah, it's That's like, what it is. I, I finally figured this out. And now I'm wine. going to yell at you, and now we're going to go fix the problem. So This guy teetering on the edge of death who's having a fever dream. Exactly. Which who's, is who's very having, well rendered. Yes. Who's yeah. having alcohol for the first time and probably yes. doesn't understand that he's not in his usual frame of mind. Yeah, right. That too. Absolutely. That's probably the only thing that kept him alive. Right. Oh, goodness. Um... There is a huge plot hole that I want to address. Uh-huh. I knew there was something I wanted to get to. It's chapter 12. And I'm going to read straight from my notes here. Um, I don't buy this crap about there were still history books even after the catastrophe. That's an enormous plot hole. Yeah. Why would anyone be printing history books on the world teeter if the world is teetering on the edge of extinction? For that matter, it would have made a lot more sense for history to have been passed down orally, mm-hmm. which would have resulted in the mistakes that the gorilla make about Sir Reginald. Um, there's also, I could believe, that there were news reports between the time of the explosion and the atomic war, and it's possible those records and word of mouth survive. But ironically, it's an original example of fake news. That turns out to be completely wrong. Or a computer database. Yeah. Something. The oral so history. Oral history makes better sense because of the way they tell the story about Styles. You know, right. See, only Styles pretended to be working for world peace. Really, he wanted power for himself. Which sounds like if you told that story down six generations, yeah. it would be like Styles was in Peking when that yes. happened. Oh no, he wanted power for himself. That's why he which went makes to Peking. Perfect sense. So, yeah. to say there's history a, books is just bizarre. I, I, I don't think it's more like yeah. a ten or twenty year process. Who would so be from, writing these books from the conference? Yeah to when the Daleks take over. I took it as years of war and destruction and social uh, breakdown. So it wasn't immediate. It's how I did it. They just decided this conference was the seed of all of it. The explosion happened. The war broke out. And, of course, the Daleks invade for the first time, according to the timeline. And they get defeated. Then, of course, the world is still a ruin. And now it happens again after... Which is, yeah. It's it's kind of bizarre. But I know that they did not address the timeline 
in either the book or the story because it doesn't mention the Dalek invasion no. of Earth. He only mentions evil of the Daleks briefly on defeating them the last time he mm. saw them in the Doctor's timeline, exactly. but not the human timeline, which he would have remembered as well. So, right. and you can pick, gosh, you could pick that apart for every every story. Has you a, could. Has I thought I'd just issue. bring it up. But that was a good. That's a good note. Um, observation. Now, a couple last things before we get to uh, Goodreads. Some of the best prose from Dix happens in this. You get some fantastic lines. Such as uh, in Chapter 8, when the Doctor is describing the time jump. He couldn't, uh. yeah, he couldn't help thinking that time travel by this method was very different from time travel in the TARDIS. It was like comparing a trip in a luxury liner with going yes. over Niagara Falls in a barrel. <laughs> Great writing. Which, Which makes done. it sound like he's done it. And I would not be surprised if the Doctor had And it. you feel that. Yeah. You feel you that know, picture, picture Gallifrey. They're 12 years old. And here's your first experiment. You're going to time jump three seconds into the past. And it probably felt that way. It's like, exactly. oh my gosh, I can't wait to get to a TARDIS. Yes. <laughs> there are a couple instances like that, too, that he's really doing his best in prose here, and it doesn't surprise me that they uh, say this is this is really his best book. I mean, we've got plenty of Dick's books more oh, to go. Yes, yes. But these earliest ones, I think we've come to a definite consensus are among his best. Yeah. And some of the later ones where he's really caring for the story are among his best when he has the time to. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just a shame it couldn't be more consistent, obviously. Um... In fact, I was trying to do a calculation earlier today, and I came up with the uh, the notion that now that Dix is gone, we have only maybe 10 or 12 authors of the Target novel still alive. Yes, that's true. Of how and many? Of about, gosh, how many would that be? You mean authors or books? About 15 or 20 out of how many are still About 15 alive? or 20... Of um, the original author. See, I'd have to do the math. I'd have to figure that out. But the thing is, once we've lost Dix, we've lost majority of the Because a lot of the other writers were only doing like one or two books, maybe. Exactly. Okay. Right. Yeah, because the next runner-up is Ian Martyr, and he only did six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that tells you something. And we don't have Ian Martyr to talk to anymore. Right. Um, and have we read all of his... Um, ooh, let me think. No, I, I don't think so because there's some to come. Yeah, there's yeah. some Tom Baker ones that he Are did there? come out. That so I know we've read like three or four. Ian Martyr. We have read four, so we've got two more of his. I think we've got Ar- uh, Ark, Ark in Space, Ark in Space, and um, Earthshock. Earthshock. So, and didn't he do? No, he didn't do Suntarn Experiment. No. No, no, I can't so we've got two one. more of his. And left. if you can find room for it, Harry Sullivan's War. We are going to do yeah. that. Which We're is a do very that good book. Definitely. Yeah, yeah yes, you've talked about that one. Yeah. yeah, Ian was a great author. I mean, just a very, much very talented man. Unfortunately, we're also going to be doing Turlo and the Earthlink Dilemma, which always reminds me of my uh, ISP from the 90s. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like, I can't Earth- connect to Earthlink. I have an Earthlink account. <laughs> yes. It tells me I'm old. That was my very first one. <laughs> Along with my AOL and my uh, CompuServe. <laughs> oh, and for you kids God. out there, CompuServe, I'll explain know, later. <laughs> it's just like a remake on Golden oh, Pond. I want to bring up one, one last thing. Yes. Um, one thing I, I, I noted here that is interesting in the book that never, ever happens is twice in the book, Brigadier calls Yates Mike, which yes. would have been outside of military protocol. Mm-hmm. He always referred to him as Captain Yates mm-hmm. or Yates. He does it in later stories, right? but not here. Not here, but it says does not it's happen in this form. serial and rarely happens in others. Yep. Um, and uh, 
it's just so it was interesting too he says Mike I'm like Mike why are yeah. you calling him Mike because you would never call really him Alistair <laughs> you yeah. know it's very strange that he does that for mm-hmm. sure um, luckily <laughs> we we are spared some uh, I almost thought we were going to be spared the speed buggy chase yes and we're not <laughs> that is the funniest scene in the whole oh, I thought God. it was pretty entertaining it's they really, buzz around on a motorized tricycle. Oh, it is so stupid. And when you watch it and on it screen, it sounds horrific. It's, it's painful it does, on screen. But it's not. It's painful on screen because they're just going around this one patch and they're being run around, uh, chased by the actors playing Ogrons. It, it, it looks it's like so the, uh, stupid. It, gosh, it looks like the little mini cars in the race that the Shriners do. Yes, oh, it's, yes. it's pretty. It's pretty bad. Oh, it's <laughs> awful. And yet, uh, on the page, we get oh, at one point Joe thought they ran uh, upward up a wall. Yeah. It's, it's like this is just awesome. Well, yeah. And they finished. Well, it was fun while it lasted. It was fun while it lasted. Yes. And I think that was the line. Yeah. That was yeah. the line because Pertwee loved his uh, motorcycles and such. Not realizing the next thing he's going to be strapped to a table. And, right. And, oh, <laughs> well, that's for and, true. And hooked, up, hooked up to the mind analysis machine. Uh, the oh, reappearance wow. of the sonic screwdriver. Yes, finally. Yes. After, yes. I don't know while. how many stories. Yeah, it has been a while, hasn't it? In fact, when was the last time we saw it? It wasn't. I think he might have mentioned it not in, in Inferno. He uses and, it and to open the uh-huh. uh, open the it garage. In Inferno, you're right. But he uses it just as a door opener. As a door opener. Yeah. Auton invasion. It helped disrupt the the autons. Yes. And and, uh, and I think that's it. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. So he hasn't had it out for a while. But it makes yeah. it. But it comes back. They'll eventually lot. whip it out all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the Venusian karate. Yes. Venusian karate comes back. Which we'll get more of in the next which, story, too. Which, by the way, on the TV show, is excellent because he's drinking wine and taking out sure on <laughs> one hand, takes another sip. Hiya! Oh, yeah. I love it. That's a good vintage. Uh, please, turn that machine off. I don't care what you do to me, but... It's, it's a great, yeah. it's a great it's a uh, show scene. of the third doctor in his full-time... Doing <laughs> what I call full-time lord. Yeah, it's yeah. just a shame we don't get more of it in that story. Yes. Um, the yes. Dalekinium. Dalekinium. Yes, Should we know what it is? Uh, you know, created right. by the Daleks, but it is the to blow themselves up. This is the first story <laughs> that I. They were in a very dark mood that day. And it's the only time we ever hear about and, it. And it fact. comes, it comes back in other Dalek stories. Yeah, you know, occasionally. And occasionally, only but, Terry Nation scripts. But then Terry Nation kind of does a double take because in this story it's a bomb. In yeah. other stories, it's the casing the Dalek is made from. Yes. Which is what possibly is why the, it's the only substance that can crack a Dalek. So it reacts with itself? Yeah. yeah. It's okay. sort of unstable. But it's okay. a very unstable explosive that then the that Daleks would use. Which is weird, yeah. because Eric Sayward is later going to say they're made of bonded polycarbonate. Polycarbonate armor. Armor. And it's like, no, it's Sylvester McCoy delivers that line. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an alien in polycarbonate armor. Yes, and it's Scottish yeah. brogue. It's hilarious. Yeah, Dalekinium is, is it's a weird thing. Yeah, I read that and I was like, but they created this thing that destroys them. Yeah, it's like whatever you, do. you needed well, to be. They probably used it for mining. My guess is that they probably, yeah. they yeah. probably sent it with slaves down there and it went off whenever it went off mm-hmm. and not caring about the person but Daleks never got near the stuff. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. they, they knew they knew darn well that this was you know, they had developed it and said, mm-hmm. you know, keep this away from us. <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> All right. Um, any last thoughts before we go to Goodreads? 
uh, one, one last note about the international crisis. The book goes into greater detail about the international crisis than what the TV says, explaining that China, Russia, and the USA are all involved and it began in the Near East, which was the term at the time for Middle East. Right. So that's you know where all our troubles usually begin, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately. And then this is, of course, we, we may have mentioned it earlier, but the time where the doctor reminds him that he defeated him on Scarrow and the evil of the Daleks was mentioned in the book, but not the TV show. Mm -hmm. no. So in, in many ways, the book went into further detail what was cut out of the televised script. Yeah. As it does, yeah. it's just astonishing in that way. Dixitus Best gets away with telling rather than showing. So yeah. an example here is, as was also the case, the Brigadier's reasons were too fantastic to be believed. Mm -hmm. And he's yes. telling us instead of showing, but still a great little character line. And oh, I think yeah. that's what he does oh, yeah. so well. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like the bit about the dogs actually being afraid. Yeah, showing fear of the doctor and, mm -hmm. and that kind and of and the mess. controller thinking, oh my god, this could be. When the controller mentions, they called him the doctor. The Daleks in the TV show actually take actually a slide take back. Did you say doctor? <laughs> doctor? Oh, like, oh crap! Yeah. At that point, I would have expected them to send more than three. Yes. See, that would have been a, Once that would, they know who's there. That would have been an immediate radio message back to Scarrow for reinforcement. Do we have a fourth, yeah. maybe even a fifth? Because this, uh, this mission is about to fail. Yeah. Uh, uh, we need reinforcements. And that would have been a Matt Smith thing to do. It's like, you right. better call home because you're about to fail. <laughs> you yes. But we would just drink more wine and go, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, uh, just the little line uh, when they have the doctor on the table about to disintegrate him, and he said, uh, it's just the line, uh, wondering what it would feel like to be disintegrated. <laughs> yes. Scientifically curious. And he says end. something about, uh, oh, that's what it is. He says something about he learned his lesson never to underestimate his enemies. Unfortunately, it was the last lesson he was brought by. Oh, ever to learn. learn. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me see if I have any, any more. Um, yeah. Just an OCR thing. Prune minister. There were no editors on that, apparently. Oh, goodness um, something just kind of that we've experienced in uh, the past couple of books that is kind of out of character. Uh, whenever Joe is gagged mm -hmm. and the doctor has, says the line about, I'm not at all sure I shouldn't leave you like that. Oh, it's no. very peaceful. Well, the TV show, she has to undo her own gag, but in the book he helps her out of the, ga out yeah. of the gag. So, but, yeah. Terrence was a little kinder. <laughs> Do it yourself. You know. Come on. <laughs> Escapology was one of her uh, right. things. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're right. It seems like mm, he he likes being dickish to her from yeah, time a little to bit. time. Yes, and that's going to go away after time. It will. It, it will eventually get to the point where you have poor Katie Manning bawling her eyes out on the commentary, watching the last episode where she leaves and the doctor is leaving on his own, and it's just like, oh. it's yeah, it's it's moving. Yeah, it really is. It is. is it time for good rates? I think so. Time for good I think we've covered everything else. I think we have. All right, as we always do. Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so you have a chance to see it before we discuss the book here. My apologies for not getting that up faster. For some reason, I blanked again. But Curse of Paladon's up there now, so you're mm -hmm. fine. The average rating for this book on Goodreads, out of five stars, 3.76. 
That's pretty damn it's, good. It is pretty That's good, pretty but good. it's not much higher than anything else, which is odd. David Davis posted to our Goodreads group, and while he didn't read the book, he did say this. I have a distinct but false memory of a final scene where the Doctor and Joe meet themselves in a mirror of their earlier scene. This mirror memory is entirely due to Terrence Dix's book, which improved on the television version in other ways too, not least in having not to listen to those awful Dalek voices. <laughs> Until the recent special edition DVD, the novelization was undeniably the best version, with enough Daleks and Ogrons to have a chance of carrying out their plan. Even with the special edition, the book is still a contender. Ken read the reprint edition and gave it five stars, saying it's not surprising that one of the earliest serials to be novelized was selected for a reprint in 2012. Not only was this Dick's second contribution to the range, having the time and energy to give delicate care to this one, but it shows that production issues can sometimes damper a good story. Dampen, I would imagine. I always think that an actor really becomes the Doctor once they meet the Daleks, so it must have risen expectations for the Season 9 opener. These Target reprints are a delight. I would just wish we ha could have more. I particularly like be the... Be the I bet son of a bitch. I particularly <laughs> like the between the lines section at the back, which compares the printed version to what we see on screen. Yeah, we didn't even get to that, but that's right, fine. That's right. You can read it, read it yourself. Travis gives us four stars, saying what starts out looking like a case of political espionage, then turns into a pretty cool story involving time travel and the Daleks. Time travel bit is very clever. It actually feels like it gets to do something. And there are a couple of good scenes with the Doctor and the rest of the cast interacting. One of the really early episode adaptations. I'm almost afraid to watch the episode, fearing it won't live up to the book. Don't worry, it won't. It won't. <laughs> and finally, Trent Reedy also gives it five stars. <clears throat> I'm going to have to wet my whistle for this one. <clears throat> and says, I grew up in a tiny Iowa farm town of 1,000 people. We had a grocery store with a little wire rack of paperback novels. These were mostly romance and western books, but one day, spinning the rack just in case something interesting popped up, I saw Doctor Who and the Day of the Daleks by Terrence Dix. This was probably about 1990, during the dark times when Doctor Who had just been cancelled in England and there was next to Unknown in America. At the time, I had never seen the Day of the Daleks TV story and I was unaware at the time that the book I'd found was a novelization of the same. All I knew is that I was lucky to have found anything about Doctor Who and I absolutely loved this story. I must have read Day of the Daleks three or four times in those days. Terrence Dix was script editor for the TV version of the story and he's a fine novelist in his own right. This book is simply wonderful. It will remain a very special part of my library. So, out of five stars, Larry, we're going to have you start. Well, I'm, I'm going to say, because uh, it is my favorite story, and I've read it many times, I, I give it a solid 4.5 out of 5 mm -hmm. for Terrence Dix writing what is a great story and a great concept mm -hmm. and doing so much better than, than the television series, which had only happened two years prior to the book being done. And I thought, what an amazing story that... You know, of course, it gave the Doctor his Time Lord moments. It gave Joe a lot of things to do. It gave Unit, Unit fighting the Daleks, which is something we always wanted to see and read about. And of course, they didn't have a, you know, a clue to how to do that. But, but, <laughs> but it was just a very wonderfully read book. And and 
like I, I echo Nicholas Briggs' comment that I think it's one of the best books that Terrence Dix ever wrote. Mm-hmm. Allison? I'm going to go 2.5. I'm going to duck slightly away from Larry and know that my numbers <laughs> tend to be quite low. So that's actually positive. It is. Um, I have a fan of the podcast that I'm aware of. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for you. That's okay. <laughs> You've been subjected subjected to yes. so much of our podcast. We're still cool. It's all right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a series of screenshots here, and one of the ones that I will keep is, oh, yes, a most, a most good-humored wine. That's a touch of the sardonic, perhaps, but not cynical. A truly civilized little wine, one after my own heart. Which is a misprint. Yeah, <laughs> there should be hearts. Hearts. Yeah. Joe looked at him impatiently. Do stop chuntering on, Doctor. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, it actually seems like a quiet little book to me, even though it's a pretty big plot compared to some of the flashier stories that we've read, especially with the the Master recently. Yeah. Um, so I think it is. Uh, it's Dick's playing to his strength, and it's a, a good one for us to read in just this week after his passing. Yeah, absolutely, Dalton. I'm going to go f- uh, 4.0 for this one. Uh, yeah, pretty solid book. Like, uh, not as, like Allison said, not as flashy as some of the more recent books we've read, but really solid. It starts off strong and just continues all the way through. Um, some of my points taken off or some of my complaints, yeah, it's just like, you're going to call a book Day of the Daleks. I want more Daleks, damn it. <laughs> um, but overall, fantastic story. Fantastic mm-hmm. book. Uh yeah, great, great send off to Terrence. So yes, and and I would agree, four point five. Um, this is definitely one of the best, if not the best. I still think Auton Invasion kind of gets there, mm-hmm. that he's definitely channeling Malcolm Hulk when he writes that book. Yeah, here he's still doing it. It's in fact, if you look at the other books around the time that this was published, mm-hmm. other people writing such as Barry Latz and Lutz. Malcolm Hulk, and Terrence Dix's somewhat the de facto editor at this point Mm -hmm. they are pushing him to be his best at that point later on when he becomes the sole author it does slip that slippage isn't even starting yet this is amazing it's not script to screen because as we've said many times the televised story barely watchable Mm -hmm. it's interesting because it's the Daleks coming back in color yes and yet it blows yes. terribly. This book does not blow. Mm-mm. This is what the story always should have been. And that's the pull quote on the new printing. This book <laughs> yes. does not blow. This book does, does not, not blow. Totally <laughs> exactly right. Marketing there should copy. be more, yes. <laughs> more pull quotes with my name behind them. Exactly. The children's own show that does not blow. <laughs> the children's own show that does not blow. Oh, God. All right. Well, thank you, guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we discuss the Cursed Paladon. And remember, please, to stay tuned after the end music for a tribute to Taron Sticks. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast or on World of Those Spaces. You can visit our nearly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes. Give us a thumbs up or comment on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperor forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Subscribe to us via the podcast of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Larry, where can we find your podcast? The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast can be found on iTunes as well as Android and Google Play. We're on DoctorWhoCollectors.com. We're also on Podbean. 
So we can be oh, found. Oh, you bastard. Yeah. <laughs> the he shelled out, shell out the extra money for bonding. Yes, I did. Oh. Uh, also, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, at Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. And our Gmail is Doctor Who Collectors Podcast at gmail.com. Terrific. And our new theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. fellow time travelers, Tony Whit here. Taryn Sticks, the author whom we talk about so much on this show, died recently on August 29th, 2019, at the age of 84. Well, I got into TV through um, some help from a, a, a friend who was already a scriptwriter and was sort of my mentor in the business, Mac Holt, Malcolm Holt. And uh, I got a job on, on a soap opera called uh, Crossfitters, which was a soap opera and also working on that was a guy called Derek Sherwin and we got to know each other you know, and become friends on that. He left and became script editor of Doctor Who and then he was offered a better job for, you know, in his terms and he wanted to get off Doctor Who but he couldn't get off until he found a replacement and apparently he tried several people all of whom failed disastrously and in some desperation turned to me <laughs> at the last minute. <laughs> And I simply got a phone call one morning when I was sitting at home, you know, trying to think of some work. And uh, he said, uh, how would you like to be script editor of Doctor Who? And I, I thought about it and said, well, how long? And he said, well, we'll give you a three-month contract, he said, and then we'll see. So I thought, well, they'll fire me after three months, but that's three months figure the BBC money, you know, and uh, <laughs> that'll be no harm. So I said yes and took the job, and uh, as I always say, there went the rest of my life, you know, here, here I am all those years later. When you get the job, you do the best you can with it, mm -hmm. and then you move on to the next one. No, I mean, there will be no use in thinking that, would it? It would be a waste of time and creative energy, because right. you can't go back and do it again. And all of them, I did the best job I could at the time, and that was it, you know, you're, right. you're all stuck with it. I did enjoy it, and it was always a challenge. It was very, very difficult. Um, people don't realise how important scripts and a script editor's job is. I was barely 12 years old when I discovered the existence of target novelizations. In exchange for a pledge of $5 a month, most of my allowance at the time, WSWP-TV in Grandview Beckley sent me a novelization and a special book. The novelization was The Horns of Nymon, which I still have to this day, and the other was Canine and Other Mechanical Creatures, which has long since disintegrated. Both were written by a man whose name I already knew from watching the show every night at 6pm, Terrence Dix. Those books were a godsend, giving me, a young gay boy, an escape from all those raucous straight kids around me at school who knew nothing about Doctor Who. War Games came about because um, Derek Sherwin came in, came into my office and said, Terence, we need a ten-part Doctor Who, you've got to write it, and we need it in a fortnight. 
which was more or less, you know, that's a slight exaggeration, but not much. It was pretty much like that. So uh, I got in, uh, I called him Mac Hulk, because I knew I'd never do it in the time by myself. I mean, it wasn't two weeks, but the time was very, very short, you know. And uh, we, we wrote the war games together in uh, ten, ten episodes. I've been disparaging about it for years and years. I, I developed a kind of uh, throwaway line, you know, at conventions and things. I said, well, you know, it opens well. I mean, you've got the, you know, you've got First World War, then a Roman chariot comes out the mist. And I think the last few scenes where the Doctor's on trial by the Time Lords, I think that's good. But in between, it's a lot of running up and down corridors and captures and escapes and things, which is actually largely true. The thing is, it came out, it was brought out again, you know, in a, yeah, in a remastered edition, you know. And uh, the Doctor Who magazine reviewed it at great length, you know. And uh, the, the review started off, Terence has been talking rubbish about this show for years. And I was highly delighted, you know, because it was a very favourable and lots of people have come up and told me they really like it, it's their favourite show. So, um, I mean, at the time, I, you know, I mean, a ten-part Doctor Who is not, you know, it's ridiculous. And all of what I thought at the time was, oh, thank God we got away with it, you know, we actually got a show out of sorts, you know. But, uh, no, I, I've, I've always been very pleased about its, uh, its new status, as it were. As I grew older, my opinions on his writing and legacy would shift and change. But one thing that has never changed is my respect for his accomplishment in helping to create one of the best-selling children's book series of all time. Setting Doctor Who right up there with Harry Potter, Nancy Drew, The Hardy Boys, The Boxcar Children, Encyclopedia Brown, all of them. The biggest difference is that most people will outgrow those other series eventually, putting them aside as childish things. Not so with the Target books, a series still read with pleasure by children and adults alike, a series that shaped and even started the reading habits of an entire generation, maybe even more. Well, the beginning of the Doctor Who range goes back to a guy called Richard Henwood being asked to start a new line of children's books, which were Target books. So he came to the BBC got a license to novelise Doctor Who, then got shunted onto the Doctor Who office and said, you know, I must have more Doctor Who books, I need them urgently, who is going to write them? And I said, I will. And I did the first one, which is Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion. That was the first one ever. In 74, that sold well, and um, the whole thing kind of dropped into my hand. When the books first came out, schools and teachers were fairly sniffy about them because they said, they're not proper books, you know, they're linked to a television program, for God's sake. And then they found that kids who would not pick up a book to save their lives would grab a Doctor Who book. Well, I, I just wanted to sort things out. The main problem always, or almost with any show, is scripts. And people don't realise how difficult it is, you know, to get a good set of scripts in. And, uh, I mean, I once went to uh, a big BBC meeting uh, chaired by Hugh Weldon, I think, you know, in those days, 
in which they were discussing the fact that a lot of BBC shows were coming in over time and over budget, you know, big overspending. And uh, what was the cause of it? And what the cause of it was that, you know, they got to in the end was late scripts. Everything stemmed from that, you see, because at a certain time, a director, well, in those days, a director joined with a team of people, and he got a limited time to do a very difficult show. If you've got no scripts to give him, he can't do anything. You know, so he's limited time, he's dribbling away. This is Larry Van Mersbergen. What would the world of Doctor Who do without Terran sticks? I can't think of. His stories included key ideas and villains and monsters that are now a permanent part of the Doctor Who canon. When he collaborated with Malcolm Hulk in writing the last story for the second Doctor, The War Games, it was brilliant and still considered one of the best stories ever written. His ability to take a script and turn it into a flowing novel was amazing. My first Target book was Day of the Daleks, and I still read it often. I did have the pleasure of meeting Mr. Dix in the 1980s, and he was a very nice man in person. I was also proud to be one of the first dealers in the United States to carry the W.H. Allen hardcover editions of Doctor Who stories, many of them penned by Terrence Dix. The world of Doctor Who owes you a debt of gratitude, and we will miss you. My name is Brandon Gant, and I just heard the devastating news of Terrence Dick's passing. My first television experience with Doctor Who was through Terrence's story Robot in 1992, courtesy of my PBS station in Maryland. What a story to become a fan on. Tom Baker's debut, Liz Slayton as Sarah Jane Smith, unit, crackpot professors, and a giant robot. It had all the makings of classic Doctor Who, and I was hooked. From there, the name Terrence Dix was immediately linked with fun and adventure. I eagerly sought out the Target novelizations that were advertised on the program and luckily found a huge pile of them in stock at the local bookstore. Through Terrence's novelizations, I got the chance to discover the other doctors and experience never seen adventures. Terrence's book made me a ferocious reader and he had the knack of turning mundane runarounds into thrilling sci-fi adventures. Terrence Dix was without a doubt uh, my favorite Doctor Who author. His writing really did fuel so many imaginations with his thrilling novelizations. It's fitting that his last published work will be in BBC Books' forthcoming The Target Storybook. Terrence always said he wanted to be remembered as a professional, and he was just that, the consummate professional. back when I was casting about for ideas for a podcast, I very quickly landed on the idea of reading the Target books from start to finish in story order. And of course, the very first book on that journey is written by Terrence Dix, and fittingly so. After writing the very first original novelization under the Target imprint, he would go on to write more than any other author, an impressive 64 books out of a total of 156. Few other authors can claim such a legacy. And just like The Doctor's Adventures, the books of Terence Dix will be enjoyed so long as there are children who dream, and so long as there are adults who remember those dreams with 
fondness. Rest easy, Uncle Terrence. Good night.